Hello everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure today to welcome uh, Mayur Thakur. Uh, Mayur is um, a, a senior relationship manager for Zacks Investment Research and a stock data and research provider for uh, asset managers. And uh, he's worked in the markets for what, over 13 years, um, consulted uh, with over 100 portfolio managers, uh, sort of mostly in the Boston, New York area. And uh, he's also worked uh, on Zach's model portfolios, which are used by IRAs and uh, advisors. And his interests are in, in high growth, financial statement analysis, uh, return on investment capital. And it is a, you know, I've been following Mayur for a long time on, on Twitter, uh, his, uh, and we'll, we'll share this out. It's fresh, it's at Fresh Chiva. And here's some really interesting tweets uh, on certain high growth companies, uh, notably Tesla, which we are going to talk about as well. But he does share uh, you know, his insights into other companies as well. And uh, yeah, so Mayur, welcome uh, to Seven Investing Podcast. Hello, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Uh, you know, usually what I like to um, start off with is just a quick introduction about, you know, who is Mayur and, and uh, what can you tell us about yourself? Uh, sure. Yeah, I have, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, interests. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned, my professional background is uh, being a uh, an analyst as well as the senior relationship manager, which means that I work directly with uh, Zach's clients who are primarily portfolio managers and analysts um, at a variety of different investment management firms. So I've you know, spent the last you know, 15 or 13 years or so uh, just working directly with them. So I kind of have you know, a firm understanding of the variety of equity um, you know, strategies that professional firms utilize. Uh, everything from value strategies to growth strategies and everything in between um, large firms as well as mid mid-sized firms. So we're talking about, you know, companies that have over $10 billion in assets under management, uh, all the way down to small uh, RIAs who manage somewhere between 25 to $50 million. Uh, but the majority of our clients are, you know, somewhere in that sweet spot, which is between a hundred million to about $1 billion of assets under management. So those are the types of firms that we work with, um, you know, portfolio managers as well as analysts. And so, you know, I've kind of started off as a blank slate, you know, just, you know, graduating college, starting, you know, working at Zacks. So I had no real background or understanding of the equity markets. I only started to develop that as I listened and learned from, you know, our clients. So I started off just providing, uh, you know, uh, support and training on the tools that we provide to them that they use to make their decisions. And in that process, I started to understand exactly what their thinking is like. What metrics do they look at? How do they look at the balance sheet? How do they look at the income statement? Um, how do they look at the cash flow statement? And then uh, how do they value companies, right? That's a, a very, very important point. Uh, as investors, we want to know a key question, which is valuation. Right. There's the business and then there's the valuation, right? The, comp- the price that we pay for that business. So, you know, we can have a great business, but if it's not trading at a good price, then as an investor, we can say, yeah, it's a great business, but I'm not going to make an investment in that company. 
right? So that's a key question that, you know, investment managers ask every single day. Um, and so I was over time kind of exposed to those, uh, you know, those different strategies and methods of, of how to go about thinking about those factors. Um, so there's, you know, that side of it. And from that, I've developed a keen interest in, you know, these, these four um, areas that, uh, you know, I, I spend most of my time on. One is understanding high growth, right? And this is something that is confused uh, investors and financial market participants for many, many years, right? Beginning with Amazon, uh, you know, which is sort of the first example in the modern era, the internet era, where you have a high growth company, but um, was a- unable to show profitability in the first five years or so, five or six years of, uh, of uh, you know, post IPO. And even after they showed profitability, the company still traded at a PE of somewhere between 100 to even up to 200 at one point. And that confused investors into thinking that the company is overvalued. So, you know, when you're a, a growth, you know, investor, there's a number of things that you have to know how to do to be able to understand and compare a high growth company with other companies and to understand its valuation. So high growth is a, is a key area of interest. Um, and that's connected to financial statements analysis, right? We have to look at the income statement we have to look at the balance sheet. We have to look at the cash flow statement and, and put it all together to understand, um, you know, a key question, which is how much of their expenses are discretionary versus mandatory? And that's a question that I think not enough people ask, right? Um, we can have, you know, say, for example, $100 million of revenue and the cost of that revenue could be, say, $50 million. Uh, so, you're, you know, your gross profit is, you know, $50 million. But then after that, the company can choose to take that 50 million and uh, hire, you know, a thousand new workers because they want to open up, you know, operations in a new country. You know, mm-hmm. that would obviously depress their earnings of that quarter, right? And that would make their stock price look elevated or inflated. Um, but that was a discretionary decision that they made. Um, however, the, the expenses that they have to pay their employees in the markets that they operate in today that's mandatory spending, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, when we look at high growth, we have to know how to, how to separate these two categories of, you know, expenses that hit the income statement and lead to that net income at the bottom line. Um, so that's financial statement analysis, you know, specifically for growth companies, but also for value, for all companies, we have to do this. Um, mm-hmm. And then another key question is return on invested capital. Right. Uh, this is a, a concept that, you know, Warren Buffett has spent his entire life talking about. His partner, Char- Charlie Munger, is especially famous for talking about it, um, as well as, you know, his con- their contemporaries. Right. They, uh, you know, Seth Klarman is another key uh, investor that I, I watch very closely. Uh, Bill Miller as well. Uh, these are investors who have this uh, a very, very uh, clear understanding of ROIC, which is that companies must earn a return on invested capital that exceeds their cost of capital, mm-hmm. right? So if a company has rates, let's say $100 million from investors and investors say that, okay, we want a minimum return of 5%, right? So that is the cost of debt plus the cost of equity, right? The cost of debt is very obvious. You can just look at the interest rate that the bonds are trading at right now. 
And the yield that those you know, bonds are trading at is basically the cost of debt. The cost of equity is a little bit harder to understand, but uh, there are methods to understand that as well. Uh, using, you know, the CAPM model is one, you know, main area that, you know, people use, which is, you know, long story short, you know, the risk-free rate plus the beta times the equity risk premium, right? So that's one way you can estimate the cost of equity. Basically, there's a cost of, of capital, right? The company has started with a capital base that was raised by investors and investors have a minimum rate of return that they require, Right. So if a company earns above that rate, right, that blended rate of return that investors require, then they generate economic profits, right? That means that they're actually creating value. If the company earns below that, then they're actually destroying value, right? Um, now, what is return on invested capital? We can talk about that, you know, later on, but basically that's a key area that I'm, you know, that I'm interested in. And then lastly is valuation, right? Once we've already identified you know, great businesses that generate great returns on capital, that have great looking financial statements, ultimately, what price do you have to pay for them, right? And what price are they actually worth? What's the intrinsic value of the company? Um, so that's a key question as investors, right? We have to ask that ultimately is what is the company worth? What is the company currently trading at in the marketplace right now? Is there a big difference between the two? If yes, it warrants a further look, right? Absolutely. That's so a great that's introduction a to what me. That's a summary of what you do. You didn't talk anything about your uh, interest in cycling or music, but that's okay. <laughs> I, you, 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 you mentioned that you have, uh, I think you play some instruments as well, um, or at least I gathered that you do. So sometimes I'm curious yeah. about what, what other things people like to do that, um, uh, you know, are, different from actually analyzing companies. Do you want to uh, share something with us, sir? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an avid cycling fan. I love uh, long distance cycling. Um, I love doing camping and cycling together. So I've done, you know, trips where I just have everything on the cycle itself, as well as uh, like, you know, we have, you know, different compartments on, on my bike where you can store like a, you know, your uh, a tent, you can store a sleeping bag, you can store you know, little equipment to actually make food and coffee. Uh, so I love camping and I love cycling to do that. So uh, I like going on trips on my bike even. Um, so I've done, you know, 200 mile cycling trips. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite things to do. Um, I am also a huge fan of drumming. Um, so I love all sorts of drums, uh, the drum set as well as Indian drumming. Um, so I'm originally from India and I love uh, the tabla right, which is a Indian hand drum. Uh, it's mm -hmm. one of the most famous drums of India. And uh, so that, uh, I personally play them myself. So, um, so I love that. Uh, I'm also, um, you know, keen on Eastern religions. So the Dharmic religions, which are Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism. Um, so I've, uh, you know, keenly studied those religions as well as their philosophies. So, you know, I dabble in that in those areas as well. So Excellent. Good to know a little bit about, you know, your interests, diverse interests as well. I, I always like to ask this uh, to all anyone I interview or anyone I actually meet uh, who invests. When did you sort of start investing, you know, uh, and do you remember what your first stock was and how did that go? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I started investing right during the height of the technology bubble. So at the time I was 13 years old and uh, for some reason, I was always inclined towards the stock market. So I used to watch CNBC, other, you know, 
other kids watched, you know, cartoons. <laughs> I watched CNBC. <laughs> I don't know why. So <laughs> uh, maybe you love you, you love know, watching to, uh, Jim Cramer. <laughs> that, that, that is a cartoon, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I used to watch Jim Cramer too, and I used to love listening to him. And I, I developed a great, uh, you know, um, basic understanding of what stocks are, right, at a very young age. Um, but it happened to be during the tech bubble, uh, the tech boom of the late 90s, where everything was trading at atmospheric valuations, right? Um, but that's when I got started. That's just, that just happens to be the time. And I remember I convinced my dad to let me manage a part of his portfolio. So interestingly, the first stock I ever bought for him was a company called Juniper Networks. Um, it was mm-hmm. right up there in terms of the hot the hottest sectors along with Cisco systems. Ultimately, Cisco systems prevailed. Juniper kind of went by the wayside. Um, they st- they're still around, but um, you know, they never became the behemoth that Cisco went on to become. But uh, you know, Juniper back then was kind of like the, uh, the Peloton, you know, like the really hot stocks that everyone talks about, mm-hmm. even Tesla, you know, where just like everyone is talking about Tesla now, people used to talk about Juniper Networks back then. Um, so I bought Juniper Networks from my dad and, you know, made some, you know, good money, but eventually it all went way down. So I made a lot and then I lost a lot. <laughs> I, I remember uh, that, that was a great early to, learning experience. I, I used to remember from that time, there's, there used to be a company called Nortel Networks. So you were at least lucky that company still exists. There are lots, like, as you said, that don't even exist today. Like Nort- Nortel, I think, went bankrupt and then probably got acquired by someone along the process. But a lot of these, you know, networking companies, um, yeah, uh, very interesting. That was the the dot com era was very interesting in many ways. And in many ways, what I find interesting is that a lot of those things that people talked about actually have happened. It just happened later, right? Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of those things got realized. It was just you know they were too early. Uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, um, your portfolio. So you you know you have the a pinned tweet. Uh, on your on your portfolio page, uh, you know that uh, I, I give uh, a high marks for the disclosure that you have. You know uh, you don't have to do it, but you do it. Eighty um, percent, as you say, of your of your uh, investments are in what you would define as high growth. So there's a basically high revenue growth companies with you know long runways and things like that. Uh, Tesla and and a few others are in that list, and then you have some that are, I guess, you know, steady as she goes, you know, stable companies on relatively modest PEs uh, that people would call maybe maybe value sort of thing. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, from your early days as an investor, did you, were you always a high growth? Because, you know, you started at the peak of, you know, at, at the sexy era of the dot-com where everything, you know, you just put a dot-com and it just went boom. Um, were you always attracted to sort of the, um, you know, the high flying ideas, the ideas of the future and the high growth companies, or, you know, is this an evolution sort of in how you, you became the investor that you're today? Yeah, I, I, I kind of have made a, uh, I've, I've gone through a sort of a journey where in the very beginning, when I was really young, right, my thir- you know, starting at age 13, obviously the only thing that I know is what I hear, right? So when I watch CNBC, the stocks that are constantly being talked about by traders are the companies that I know. And back then, you know, we didn't really have access to, you know, sophisticated technology. We didn't have social media. Uh, the internet was just at its very nascency. Like, you know, it was very, very uh, early on. 
So, um, you know, there weren't, you know, a lot of message boards or things like that back then. That was very, very early on. So, you know, all I did was invest in what I heard. What, so that was basically buying the hot stock of the day, right? Um, and then when everything crashed in 2000, um, that, left, that left such a bad taste in my mouth about investing that I actually stopped investing myself. Um, mm-hmm. And that was right when I was about to start, you know, that was high school and then college. So I went for about a period of like six years where I didn't invest anything. I just, you know, looked at the markets, I tracked them, but I didn't personally invest anything. And back then I didn't have a whole lot of money either um, as such a young you know, kid and student. Um, but after I started working, I, I joined Zacks in, in late 2007. And then we had the financial crisis of 2008, right? Um, and I saw the markets crash and we didn't know, like I was looking at my coworkers, we're like, hold on, we, we, we work in the very industry that's getting completely devastated right now. We didn't know if we we're gonna still have jobs or not. But I looked at the S&P 500 and during that time, I started to be more of a macro investor rather than individual you know, stock selection. So I looked at the broad markets and I saw everything collapsing together, right? Everything goes to a correlation of one during major market, um, you know, you know, turbulence. No matter who you are, no matter what your situation is, whether you have billions of dollars in in cash, you know, as a safety measure, or if you don't have that, everything dropped, you know, in lockstep with one another. So I said, you know, if we just bought an index fund, right, during the crash. Um, then what's going to happen is, you know, due to the natural rebalancing that happens within the fund, which is that, um, you know, the best companies are the ones that are weighted the most and the worst companies are the ones that are weighted the least, right? Because the index is a market cap weighted index. So it naturally rewards winners and, you know, diminishes losers. So I said, everything is getting tossed out together, where you're, whether you're a good company or bad company, why not just buy the S&P index? And I saw that, you know, because of the massive drop, um, you know, post the Lehman bankruptcy, um, I said, you know, why not just buy the S&P index? So I became an index investor for some time, buying the dip, right? Mm-hmm. After the Lehman crash. Um, and that was when the markets were already down 35% or so. They proceeded to drop another 15% after that. And so I was underwater for some time, but I, you know, I just had this in me where I said, well, why don't we look at the 100 year history of the Dow Jones, the 100, the almost 100 year history of the S&P 500, you know, the U.S. equity market and really the world market has gone through so much over the past 100 years, right? We've had the Great Depression, we've had uh, the crash of 1929, we've had World War One, World War Two. Um, you know, the Cold War, right? We had, you know, in the US, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we didn't even know, you know, if the communist, you know, communist Russia is going to, you know, actually unleash nuclear weapons, you know, we've been through so much. And despite all of that, markets just continue to go up and up and up and up in the long run. In the short run, yes, there are periods of turbulence. But if you simply look at that 100 year chart of the Dow, and if you simply bought the dips, you would have done phenomenally well. Um, And that money that you buy during those periods of depressed valuations, 
uh, compounds that much quicker because what you're doing is you're paying for the same basket of companies at such a lowered, uh, you know, uh, expectation that, you know, these companies don't have to do a lot in order for your investment to actually pan out well because of the prices being so low. Expectations mm-hmm. are lowered so dramatically. Um, in fact, they usually overshoot to the downside beyond what's even reasonable. Um, and, you know, that ends up being a great way to compound your money at a much higher rate than the average over that time period by buying those dips. Um, you know, it's I have, funny. There's, I, have, I, I, was I just want to mention. I'm go yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. I, so I was just going to say, it's a, there's a funny thing that, um, so Art Cashin, if you, you know, watch the U.S. Uh, version of CNBC, uh, who was the floor trader of, uh, you know, for UBS at the New York Stock Exchange. Um, he's a veteran trader, uh, huge respect for him. He said something really funny, which is that, you know, if you knew that if, it, 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 you know, if we got an alert that says a nuclear warhead is headed towards us right now, you know, you should buy the dip <laughs> because... <laughs> If, 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 it's, if it's true that, you know, a warhead is coming our way, we're all going to be gone and no one's going to care about whatever losses that you make. But if, you're, if there is no warhead, then guess what? You just made a ton of money by buying that dip. So it's a win-win situation either way. <laughs> or you can, I, love, I guess I you, love, can't, you can't lose any money, I guess, in that way. So. <laughs> um, I love that idea. I actually, the, this idea of buying the dip, of, it's actually very hard to do, right? I mean... Most people do the exact opposite, right? They buy the top and the sell at the bottom because they just can't tolerate the the stocks going down. Because typically, people would own, you know, if you if you had a portfolio of a million dollars and that's down thirty percent, right? You know, you're at seven hundred thousand dollars. You'd be like, oh my god, right? So I mean, it, it just is psychologically hard, but it makes complete logical sense to actually buy the dip, especially you know the broad market dip because you know the markets on the long term returns. I love that idea. Um, and, and, and would 100% say that's the right thing to do. Brilliant. I love that. Um, I'm going to, you know, switch to a topic that I love, you know, my largest personal holding is Tesla. Uh, it's as large as I would not recommend anybody have it as, as that large, but I'm okay with the volatility. Um, so I want to talk, uh, you know, spend some time talking about Tesla. So I, I want to frame this like this. Uh, when I tell anyone, and I've almost stopped con- trying to convince people to actually buy the Tesla stock. Uh, and that's, that's re- the reason being that whatever I try, people will say things like, well, automobile manufacturing is a very, very capital intensive business. You look at all the other, you know, original equipment ma- manufacturers, OEMs out there, you know, they uh, are you there? Mayor? Okay, we're gonna pause for a second uh, to see Mayor's video just cut out. Uh, Not sure what happened (laughs) for a second. I can't hear you, you're muted out. Okay, Uh, okay. can you hear me? Uh, Yes, I can. Sorry, we had a uh, cutout in the middle, but that's okay. We'll, we can deal with that. Um, so I was just saying that, you know, people think of uh, 
auto manufacturing is very capital intensive, which it is, right? You need factories, you need to build these bulky things. Uh, gross margins are typically not very high. Uh, they're not like software like gross margins, right? I mean, they're going to be low. And it's a scale game. So when, whenever I tell people about Tesla, they say, ah, but you know, there's Ford, there's, you know, there's Chrysler, now Fiat or whatever it is. The, there's, you know, there's Toyota, there's BMW, there's Mercedes-Benz, and there's so many others, right? It's a very competitive field and it's very difficult to actually, and so many companies have gone bankrupt. So I guess what I'm interested in, your viewpoint on what's the, I guess the very, very high level uh, reason the Tesla is an, is an in interesting investment case. Yeah, uh, I, I think ultimately there's one reason why uh, you should own Tesla, which is that uh, in the future, um, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years, however long it takes, ultimately every car sold, every new car sold will be all electric. Uh, the writing is on the wall that electric vehicles are superior in every way to the internal combustion engine. So before we even talk about Tesla, let's talk about like the why or the what, right? Electric vehicles in general, not just Tesla's, but anyone, anyone's electric vehicles are superior in every category versus their equivalent uh, in a price for price um, versus an internal combustion engine vehicle. Uh, they are more cost-effective, right? They utilize, um, you know, the cost of maintenance and the cost of upkeep uh, and the cost of operations is significantly lower, right, than equally priced uh, gasoline-powered vehicles. And uh, they have better performance than equally priced, uh, you know, internal combustion engine vehicles. And then also there is the environmental impact as well. So I think there's a trifecta here where you have better performance, uh, lower cost of operations, and better for the environment. Um, there, in, in, in that sense, because it makes sense, it will happen, right? Ultimately, something has to make sense. It has to be good for the environment, but it also has to create value for customers. Um, the Toyota Prius is, a, is, is great for the environment versus you know, um, you know, previous uh, vehicles, right? As a fuel-efficient car. Um, but there are things that you have to give up when you have a Toyota Prius and you can't really have a, you know, a hybrid with that kind of efficiency for larger vehicles um, like SUVs and pickup trucks and, you know, even, uh, you know, class eight semi trucks. Right. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of compromise with, um, you know, the Toyota Prius, whereas with electric vehicles, you get better performance, lower cost of operations and better for the environment. So fundamentally, it makes sense for all of society, the, the world, to transition away from fossil fuel-based vehicles to electric vehicles. So that's step number one, um, you know, a future of all electric, um, you know, battery-powered vehicles in the future. Number two, why Tesla? The reason for, you know, the investment case in Tesla is that despite the fact that every automaker, and Elon Musk has actually said this himself, he said it at Battery Day, um, the, the, the day where they announced their new battery um, last, uh, late last year. Uh, he said that ultimately, he said something that really struck me. He said, ultimately, every auto manufacturer will have long range electric vehicles. Ultimately, every automaker will have autonomous driving. The difference, however, between different automakers 
will be manufacturing capability, will be manufacturing efficiency. And that is the advantage that I see Tesla having versus the establishment, versus the Mercedes-Benz and the Toyota and the General Motors um, and the BMWs of the world. They have expertise in auto manufacturing better than anybody else. And they have a hundred years of expertise in that. However, their expertise is in a fundamentally different apparatus, which is the internal combustion engine. The only thing that the internal combustion engine vehicle and electric powered vehicles have in common is the chassis, right? Which is the frame of the vehicle itself. And even that is now changing. Um, but like, for example, the door handles are going to be basically the same. You know, the, the side view mirrors are going to be basically the same. The steering wheel is basically the same. The seats are basically the same. That's the only things that they, they, they kind of share in common. Everything under the hood is completely, uh, you know, completely different. And Tesla has an advantage in that area because they are the upstart, right? They have built the apparatus from the ground up. If you, if you notice what other vehicle manufacturers are doing is that they take their existing vehicles and just retrofit a battery pack into them. And that's fine for a quick fix. That's fine to just rush an electric car out to market so that you, you can say to people that, hey, we have an EV too. Um, but ultimately, they won't have the margins that Tesla does. So we know that Tesla has an advantage in battery cost, right? Because they're the ones that have been leading the charge on this. Um, for over 10 years now. So because they're the most, you know, because they have unit economics on their side, they're the ones that produce the most number of electric vehicles and therefore have the lowest unit costs of, of you know, per kilowatt hour for their battery cells. They can achieve gross margins that are significantly better than what any competitor out there can do. So for example, um, I looked at GM's, um, you know, uh, earnings call transcript of Q1 as well as Q4. A lot of conversation about electric vehicles, about their plans to go electric, but you won't find even one reference about their gross margins, yes. right? They'll talk about their gross margins of their gasoline-powered cars. They will not talk about their margins of their electric, uh, you know, electric vehicles, mm. And there's only one reason for that. You can guess what that reason is, right? It's probably not yeah. good, right? In fact, they're probably negative. Um, they might be getting close to break even if they get to at least you know a couple hundred thousand units per year, um, but they're not there yet. They're not talking about it. So they are operating at a fundamental disadvantage because they are you know on a double-edged sword, right? Do they invest heavily in electric vehicles? Um, and, and get worse gross margins out of them than their existing profit machines, which is their, you know, you know, their gasoline powered cars and trucks. Um, or they, do they continue to just, you know, con, you know, do they just continue to build, you know, the internal combustion engine and hope that this is all just a fact, right? Mm -hmm. So they have an existential crisis right now is what direction do we go? If we go the electric vehicle route, then we have to prepare our investors to accept lower profit margins lower overall margins, um, as well as take billions of dollars in asset charges, write-offs, because their existing supply chain will be obsolete. Mm -hmm. So all of their factories right now that are configured to build internal combustion engines are essentially worthless, 
right? They have to write down those, you know, those assets. They have to basically scrap them or, you know, auction them off or just liquidate them and basically start from scratch again. So ultimately, if the old school automakers want to go electric, they have to start from the beginning of the line, not jump straight at the, or sorry, they have to start from the back of the line, not jump straight to the, the front of the line. And Tesla already has 10 years of experience doing this. Um, so they have a huge lead on know-how. They already have very good gross margins compared to you know, the uh, existing automakers. Um, and now they're already on you know, battery cell uh, 3.0. 1.0 was the original, or sorry, 4.0. 1.0 was the original Roadster, which they basically built off of laptop batteries. Um, then they had the Model S, which is the, the next you know, generation battery pack, which is called 18650. Then they had the 2170 innovation, which is even better than the old ones. And now they have you know, an even next generation battery that is even higher density and lower cost to build. So you know, I think that the combination of 10 years of know-how um, and a huge leg up on gross margins and a huge leg up on cost, right? And the, those two are related, are the reason why Tesla is in escape velocity, why, why I think they will be the leaders of the electric vehicle revolution and everybody else will be followers. So I love that. Can I try, I'm going to try to summarize that. So basically, if I say that, if we assume that EVs are the likely final point at which we are going to be, then it's, then what we need is we need a completely different set of technologies. We need batteries, we need a different chassis design, um, we need software, and we need the integration between the hardware and software, right? So it's basically the, the car looks like the car, but it's a different type of car. And your existing factories are therefore not in a position to be transitioned. It's very hard. I guess you could try, you could assume that you have the space, but everything else, the equipment that you have for manufacturing uh, and, and all the robotics and so on does not work, right? You basically have to throw it, which is what you call asset write-offs. And I guess this is one of those things where the incumbent always finds it difficult to change over because they're the incumbent and their profit machine is something else. And it's very, very, and they have got, uh, I guess, um, um, institutional imperatives, right? If I work on the IC in the internal combustion engine department and I lead it, I'm not going to be really happy about trans transitioning to EVs because that reduces my cl my clout, right? All of those very human behavior come into play, which which in my mind basically says that I think I would give a higher odds for success of the upstarts, like, even if they're you know behind Tesla in terms of when they are in the roadmap, right? So somebody like a Rivian has a much higher possibility, probability of success compared to an original equipment manufacturer uh, who used to manufacture ICs actually succeeding. So I, I, that's how I look at it. And that seems like, a, you know, like one way of summarizing what you basically said. I guess, I guess if, you, if you know. If yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah, so that's, that's why I think that they, if they want to succeed, yeah, if, if, if the original uh, you know, uh, automakers want to succeed with EVs, they will have to do what Tesla did uh, in 2014, you know, which is build a gigafactory, build a battery factory, you know, and then build you know, infrastructure from the ground up. So, and I think they will do it because I think they will eventually have to do it, right? Because mm -hmm. I believe that you know, the world is going to go straight, uh, you know, directly to to electric vehicles, it just makes fundamental sense. Um, and so I think they will have to do that. So 
eventually they will figure it out. I don't think that, you know, Tesla will be the only one um, or even Rivian, but I think GM, I think Volkswagen um, will eventually figure out electric vehicles, but they're going to have to do what Tesla already did six to seven years ago. And then they will only be caught up to Tesla from about five or six years ago, not where Tesla is today. Um, so that's my view. Um, they, and they have, you know, a, you know, a decision to make and it has to be quick. Do they continue to go down the road that they're going on right now, which is, you know, the internal combustion engine, which is a, which is a profit machine for them, or do they invest heavily in electric vehicles, take huge losses up front, and then eventually only make gross margins that are basically the same as where they are right now. Hmm. It's a, it's a very tough decision for them to make. Excellent. Okay. So switching gears, let's, you know, one could look at the high level numbers for, you know, the Q1 2021 report uh, for Tesla and say, well, whoa, you know, 70% revenue growth, you know, company still very early stage generating profit. Actually, you know, uh, whether it's gap or non-gap or, you know, whatever is your, is your favorite number with a free cash flow, everything looks great. But then most people will say, well, you know, all of those things look great because there was like about $500 million of credits, which is essentially credits that other companies or, or dollars that other companies are paying Tesla so that they don't get fined for the polluting cars that they are producing because of various regulations. When we take that out, um, you know, you get to like, you know, almost like zero profit, zero free cash flow kind of scenario, right? Uh, and that's been the story um, for the last several quarters, I would say that, you know, there's been a dominant component. It almost seems like, you know, Tesla is able to figure out exactly how much credits it should book in each quarter so that it makes the number it needs to make. So how do you, how do you respond to that? You know, it's, it's a great question. And I, I, you know, I agree that, you know, when you do analysis of Tesla, I actually agree with that crowd, which is that um, we should be looking at Tesla's numbers before the effect of regulatory credits, um, because regulatory credits are great. It's real. It is real income that they're making. It's not like they're not, um, but it will eventually go to zero. Now it it's high right now. It may continue for another year or two. So there's still, you know, potentially billions of dollars left for Tesla to make from them. Um, but eventually they'll go to zero, right? So as an investor and analyst, right, my interest is not in what Tesla can do for a year or two, but what they can do repeatedly for the long run, right? So we have to look at, you know, things like gross margins and profitability before regulatory credits are considered. Now, yes, it's true. If you looked at Q1, if you subtracted uh, the regulatory credits from their operating income, uh, they basically, you know, broke even. I, you can say that they basically broke even. They didn't make a profit or a loss. It's not a big. It's not a big number either way. Um, however, what you have to do is what I mentioned earlier, towards the beginning of this, uh, you know, of our conversation, which is that we have to be an analyst and understand how much of their PNL, right? How much of the expenses that they're booking on their income statement is discretionary spending and how much of it is mandatory spending. So if you look at it under the hood, and if you listen to the earnings call, right, Zach Kirkhorn, right, the CFO of Tesla said um, that, you know, embedded in our costs that we reported for Q1 are, you know, $200 million of a hit that was recorded 
on the cost of goods sold line. Um, and that is attributable to the Plaid Model S and X tooling, as well as other expenses that they had to record. Because remember, they did sell Model S and X vehicles in Q1. It was only about 2000 or so. But remember, the way that accounting works is that if you sell even one car, whatever the, you know, the total expenses are attributable to that program, you have to record all of it up front. So if you, if you sold one car and you hired a thousand workers for that line, you have to book all of their wages against the revenue of that one car, right? So that's just how accounting works. So they sold 2000 Model S and X cars, very low, right? Significantly lower than previous quarters. Um, but because they sold those 2000 cars and because they made investments um, to upgrade that lines, getting ready for plaid Model S and X, they had to record according to gap accounting rules, they had to record 200, you know, the total cost of, uh, of that setup, which was about 200 million, uh, you know, according to Zach on the call. So that alone, you know, is a discretionary spending category, what I would call a discretionary, um, you know, spending. Why? Because that is spending for growth, right? They could say, we're not making any changes, you know, Model S and X are profit, you know, you know, machines, we're happy with what they're doing. You know, people are still buying them. We're just going to let it go and just, you know, milk it for as much as it can make for us. If that's the case, they would have made a lot, you know, they would have made a very healthy profit. They could say, you know, forget about it. We're not expanding in Berlin. We're not going to expand to Texas. We're not going to do any other factories. We're just going to max out the production of our existing, you know, factories. And we're not going to hire any more people, you know, for new markets and whatnot. You know, we're just going to sit where we are right now. If they did that, you know, we would have hundreds of millions of dollars of fewer expenses and you would have seen, you know, a profit even before counting, um, you know, the regulatory credits of north of a billion dollars. And, you know, the critics would be, you know, probably move on to something else to, to criticize about Tesla, right? And, you know, profitability won't be one of them. So, you know, Ultimately, but that's not what maximizes shareholder value, right? We don't want them to do that. We want them to continue playing in a full court offense, right? We want them to continue investing in the next generation battery. Um, so if you look at it, um, you know, the $200 million hit to, to COGS, right? The cost of goods sold. They also had a big step up in R&D, right? And that's related to, according to Zach on the call again, related to the development of their new uh, battery cell, the 4680 battery cell, which will change everything in my view. It's going to allow um, uh, you know, Tesla's next phase of growth. Why? Because right now batteries are in such you know, scarce uh, supply right now, uh, given the growth that Tesla is going through, that they need additional battery cells. But they also need to push costs down further, right? If they want to attain higher gross margins, or if they want to maintain their gross margins and produce a more affordable car, which is what their plans are, right? So we have to see further reductions in battery cost per kilowatt hour. So they're making these investments in, in order to realize that battery cost decline, right? If we wanna do that, then we have to have these expenses up front. If you don't want any of that, if you don't want a widely affordable Tesla car, if you just want Tesla to sell $100,000 cars to the ultra rich, you know, maybe they could do that and they would make billions of dollars, but then it would be a fraction of the size as, as they are today because, 
you know, millions of people can't afford $100,000 cars, right? That's only in the 100,000, 200,000 range per year. And that's not what we want as Tesla investors. We want Tesla to accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles. And you can't do that by just selling $100,000 cars, right? So again, we have to separate these discretionary spending items from non-discretionary spending or mandatory spending. So if you were to do that, then Tesla would have actually made um, you know, a very large profit. I, I believe that they would have made roughly a $500 million uh, profit even before counting re regulatory credits. Um, and another thing that they booked um, in Q1 as well as in Q4 of last year was the accrual of Elon Musk's uh, compensation bonus, right? Because he has a stock-based compensation plan. He's not paid a salary, he's paid in stock. And so if they achieve uh, you know, market cap uh, targets as well as revenue or EBITDA targets, then um, you know, he gets paid for that, right? That's his compensation because it's aligned with shareholder interests as the company grows and as the stock price goes up, Elon gets his bonus, right? So because of that accrual, that also increased the total stock-based compensation for that period. So again, if you stack up all these things, um, I believe Tesla, you know, had five hundred million dollars of non-reoccurring charges that were booked in Q1. If you were to simply reverse those, then yes, Tesla did make a profit, right? So the question is, are they recurring charges or are they non-recurring charges? I believe that they're non-recurring charges, right? Um, you know, so that's what we have to do. That's what we have to talk about, right? So if you can dis if you can discern uh, these two categories of expenses that end up hitting the PNL, then you can better understand why Tesla reported what they did, right? And whether or not there is room for significant improvement down the line. And that's what you know, Zach, you know, guided on the call is that right now, you know, our margins took a hit because. SNX deliveries were down dramatically, and at the same time, uh, cost of goods sold increased. Right, so you had a reduction in revenue and an increase in cost of goods sold. So that's a double, you know, hit to the gross margin level. As soon as Plaid Model SNX is up and running, as soon as they start production, um, you know, I believe uh, we're going to see a huge reversal in gross margins. And then ultimately down to the operating profit level, even before considering these regulatory credits. So that's something that we have to you know, take into consideration. Um, also, just another quick point. If you look at adjusted EBITDA, right? Adjusted EBITDA is a measure that Tesla reports. And um, I like this number a lot. And the reason is because, like I said, we have to make adjustments to financial statements to understand you know, how much of the expenses are due to discretionary versus mandatory spending. Adjusted EBITDA gets you closer. I wouldn't say it's the perfect measure, but it gets you closer to um, looking at operating profit um, before, you know, these discretionary uh, spending decisions are considered. Why? Because what is adjusted EBITDA? It's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and stock-based compensation. The lion's share of, of those expenses are stock-based compensation and depreciation. Stock-based compensation uh, correlates very, very closely with the rate of hiring, right, that they do. So as they grow, right, and as they expand to new markets, 
um, they create new jobs, right? And so as the headcount increases, so does stock-based compensation. So by adding that back to the, uh, the operating profit level, what we're actually doing is we're adjusting for, okay, if they didn't grow so much, if they didn't uh, you know, expand their operations so much, then these, you know, th then this growth in stock-based compensation never would have happened. So if you add that back, right? And then what's depreciation, right? It's the depreciation of all of these new factories that they're building all at once simultaneously. So Gigafactory Shanghai is up and running now. That's contributing to depreciation now. Um, you know, Giga, you know, Gigafactory Berlin and Gigafactory Texas are starting to come online. You know, they're they're coming up now. Pretty soon, those two factories are going to start contributing to depreciation. So the question is, you know, if we are to put our analyst hat on, we would look at adjusted EBITDA um, to understand operating profit before growth spending is considered into that number. And if you look at that number, X regulatory credits, right? Even before regulatory credits, um, you will see that the adjusted EBITDA margins of Tesla from you know, 2014 to now have actually gone up, not down. So even before you count the effect of these regulatory credits, you can see that Tesla has, has actually been building profitability but it's just simply being, uh, you know, you know, obfuscated, right? It's being covered up by growth spending, right? So as soon as we, you know, separate that adjusted EBITDA, in my view, is a great way to kind of do that to understand, okay, before we count all of these growth spending decisions that they made, what would have they made if they just stayed, you know, st you know, stood still, right? And that's what adjusted EBITDA kind of gets it gets you towards at least closer to that final number. And so because that's happening right now, um, I believe that this is a leading indicator for traditional operating profit. So as adjusted EBITDA continues to scale, as adjusted EBITDA margins continue to scale, I believe eventually the operating income uh, number will start to show huge profitability. And that's what Zach said on the earnings call. He still expects Tesla to um, basically achieve industry-leading uh, operating profit margins. So that's super, super exciting to see. Fantastic. I'm going to ask you for two clarifications on this because this is this is actually useful for people who want to analyze things on their own. Um, so uh, I love actually the the adjusted uh, looking at this operating profit as a metric. Um, one of the things that you know, one way to counter that argument, and I'm just making this argument. I want just need to hear your answer for this is when we add back stock-based compensation, eventually stock-based compensation is basically dilution, right? Because the EBITDA number is not looking at any per share growth, right? So you can look at the EBITDA actually grew 50%, but if the share-based compensation added 20% dilution, then the total growth is actually lower, right? So how, how should people think about stock-based compensation and EBITDA and then the, and the corresponding dilution that comes into play? Did you get the question, Mayor? I have a little uh, glitch again. May you get around? 
Sorry. <laughs> again, something happened. All right, we're back. Yeah, we're back again. Did you hear my question or you didn't get my question? Uh, no, I, I, I couldn't hear that. What was that again? Okay, so I, I said that I love operating, uh, looking at operating profit and looking at it X credit. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, the adjusted EBITDA. The one, uh, you know, if I had to throw a shade at it, I would say, well, if we add back stock-based compensation, stock-based compensation basically adds dilution, right? So, you know, uh, the operating profit might have grown by 50%, but the dilution might have been another 20%. So how do you, in your analysis, factor that in? Um, you know, how do you, how do you think of the stock-based uh, comp actually causing dilution versus the growth that we are getting? Yeah, um, so you can actually very easily um, look at that um, by looking at the adjusted EBITDA per share, right? So if you want to make sure that the dilution isn't actually diminishing the growth rate, right, per, on a per share basis, then all we have to do is take adjusted EBITDA in dollar terms and divide it by the total share count, the total diluted share count. Um, and so if you look at that number, even that number has a very, very high growth rate. I don't have the number in front of me exactly, um, but the number is in excess of the revenue growth rate. So the revenue growth rate has been right around 50%, you know, roughly speaking, and the adjusted EBITDA per share growth rate has been something greater than that. I think it's around 65%. So even adjusting for the dilution that's caused by stock-based compensation, um, it, you know, it, the, the growth is still absolutely phenomenal. Um, and that's Absolutely. also, and that's also an indication that there is operating leverage uh, mm-hmm. being, you know, playing out here. You don't see it yet at the, you know, at the um, at the traditional operating income level, EBIT, which is EBIT, um, because of all these, you know, growth spending, me- you know, measures that that we've been talking about. But because adjusted EBITDA is showing this, it to me tells me that eventually this is actually a leading indicator. Um, for the traditional operating income level, and then ultimately net income. So as Tesla continues to scale, I believe that, you know, that number will eventually show. It's already shown in past quarters. And so, so it's not like we're completely estimating mm-hmm. here. Um, it's already been doing this. We've already seen a full year of profitability. Yes, it's, you know, thanks a lot in big part to regulatory credits. But keep in mind, Tesla hasn't, this is not new to Tesla, right? Tesla has been selling regulatory credits since 2016, and yet only now they've become profitable. So, mm-hmm. you know, that tells you right there that, you know, they were, you know, getting regulatory credits back in 2016, 2017. And back then they were not profitable because they hadn't scaled yet. Now they've mm-hmm. scaled. Um, and so now you're actually seeing profitability. Um, and it's being, you know, forecasted. It's being telegraphed by adjusted EBITDA. You know, and that's why adjusted EBITDA is something we all should pay attention to. Not to say that it's more important than net income. I'm not saying that at all. It's not more important than free cash flow. It's not more important than the bottom line, but it's it's a tool of analytical, you know, relevance. Um, So if you are an analyst and you want to know what's happening with this, you have to pay attention to that number. Absolutely. Uh, Again, you know, the thing I, I like to say and which you have pointed out right now is um, the thing to note is there is operating leverage that we are seeing in the model. We are seeing that at scale, right? This is the scale of billions that is happening. And we are still sort of at the growth curve where all these factories that are still not online yet, right? We don't have Berlin producing cars. We don't have Texas uh, 
producing cars, right? We don't have Shanghai at full ramp up. So we are already, you know, at that point where we are seeing billions of dollars going through at the top line, which is translating into operating profit. And yet we have not yet scaled up to that point where all these investments are really forward. forward. Uh, so I love that. It's, that's fantastic. And thanks for clarifying that. Okay, since we have, you know, we've had a few, I'm going to try to rush through some things. Uh, uh, always cautious about other people's time and your time, Mayur. Um, let's, you know, actually, I'm going to skip talking about full self-driving because, you know, that's not, because that's not even probably relevant to what we are talking about right now. One of the things that I noticed in the call um, for Q1 was, so Tesla has, you know, the auto business, we can call it the full self-driving business, and then has the energy business. The, the energy business, I have to say, I have mixed feelings about it personally, although I've always thought of Tesla personally as an energy, sustainable energy company first, and then there are various means in which it realizes the sustainable energy goal. Now on the call, I believe Zach was making the comment that the power walls, you know, and I personally have two power walls in my house, uh, so I'm contributing to their profits there. The power walls have auto-like gross margins. The mega packs actually don't. They, you know, they're tiny profitability, and I think they're losing money on their solar business. Um, how do you feel about where this energy business is, and do you think it can actually scale up and be profitable? Yeah, um, yeah. The, the, that I, I also noticed that as well on the call, and it was an interesting part of the call where he talked about the differences there. Um, yeah, the the power wall is going to be. Uh, you know, if you notice, like one of the questions on the Q1 call was concerning the Tesla solar roof, right? The new product that they have, the solar uh, tile that they, you know, that they've been developing now for a number of years, but it's been delayed um, repeatedly. So there's a little bit of frustration now uh, setting in uh, regarding that product because it's been so, you know, you know, delayed and the people that have gotten it, you know, have had their prices increase and things like that. Um, I, I think what's happening here is that solar is a commodity, right? It's a commodity business. Rooftop solar, I should say, right? So rooftop mm -hmm. solar panels is essentially a commodity. Um, in fact, I think Elon Musk even answered this question on a previous earnings call where someone asked, you know, is there any, um, you know, improvements that we can expect out of the Tesla solar panels themselves? And Elon Musk said, no, there's really not much more we can do. You know, solar is basically maxed out in terms of its energy efficiency. There's no, you know, technology that we know of that can do anything better than this. Um, so it's going to be, you know, it's going to be plateauing from here on out in terms of its, you know, energy, uh, you know, efficiency in terms of how much energy it can produce from sunlight. Um, so solar is and always will be a commodity at this point. And there's many other solar providers, not just Tesla. Um, in fact, there are many others that are much larger than Tesla in solar. Um, I think Tesla's solar is going to move towards the solar roof. And the solar roof is really the area that I think Tesla can actually create value because we all have roofs, right? And ultimately the, the roof needs to be replaced. So why not get, you know, two in one, which is a roof and solar tiles together. The problem with that is, although it's great for the, you know, the, the, the customer, it hasn't been great for Tesla because they can't do it at a cost that uh, makes sense, you know, in terms of profitability. 
So now what they're doing is coupling this Tesla solar roof with the Powerwall, right? And Powerwall, like you mentioned, has gross margins that are auto-like. And so if they can combine those two, Are we back? Can you hear me? Sorry, this has been sorry for the uh, yeah. <laughs> the tech issues we are having. Oh yeah, that's all right. Um, yeah, so I think I think I missed most of it, but I don't know whether it recorded it or not. But that's maybe you can summarize the issue with the the solar business. Yeah, yeah. So I like I was saying is that you know solar is a commodity, rooftop solar. Um, but I think the area that makes a lot more sense in terms of the value creation is the, te the, the Tesla solar roof because it gets you two products in one, right? Eventually, everybody needs a roof replacement. So why not get a roof replacement and solar together in one? Um, so if you do some of the cost analysis, I believe you know, a number of people on, on Twitter and YouTube have done this. Um, uh, there, it, there is you know, some evidence, there is good evidence that um, it is a good economic decision for individuals to get the solar roof. If you count and calculate your internal rate of return that you generate from that versus a comparable, you know, regular roof plus rooftop solar. Um, the problem is, is that although it's a good deal for customers, it hasn't been a good deal for Tesla because they haven't been able to do it profitably or at least at a gross margin that's acceptable because it's, it's a very complex product. You have to have roofers, you know, come in and do it and you have to do it in X amount of days. I think a week is the max that they want to aim for in terms of how long it takes to install it because the longer it takes, you know, the higher the cost it is to install it. And therefore, you know, that's coming directly out of Tesla's pocket. Um, so what they're doing now is coupling that with the Tesla Powerwall, right? Uh, according to Elon Musk on the Q1 call, and the Powerwall, like you mentioned, has auto-like margins to it. So when they can do that, it adds, oh, yes, it does increase the total cost pretty significantly, but it still um, adds incremental value to the customer because the Powerwall itself serves as a battery bank you know, for your home so that your solar charges your Powerwall. And so therefore, everything interfaces with your Powerwall between you and the utility. Um, and essentially you can live off grid, you know, from the utility, if your, you know, battery has enough power uh, based on your energy product, you know, consumption needs. Um, so it still adds value. It does increase the total cost, but for what you get, um, there is, you know, value creation. So hopefully this new initiative, um, you know, fixes that problem of, of, of lack of profitability and hopefully they can figure out the, the installation cost as well. But that's you know something that's different that Tesla did um, starting in Q1, which is to combine the solar roof product with Tesla Powerwall. Um, the mega packs are a different you know ball game entirely because those are for utilities, right? That's not for individuals. So utilities are all about you know cost economics, and so you know when you're dealing with you know you, you know battery arrays in the megawatts, right? Then um, you know the cost per kilowatt hour in terms of the price that Tesla charges has to be significantly lower. Otherwise utilities won't accept it. It just won't make sense economically. So um, the margin potential for um, Megapack has always been lower than you know, the rest of Tesla's business. 
which is the auto and Powerwall business. And I think that's going to continue. I think Tesla will ultimately try to replicate their successes that they that they have um, in South Australia, um, where they built uh, you know a battery and wind farm together with a, a French company, um, and you know they have utilized their software, which is AutoBidder, to essentially arbitrage uh, the energy markets so that way you know energy is discharged when rates are really high and energy is saved when rates are really low, right? So um, Tesla, I think, is going to try to make up on margins, uh, the low margins from Megapack by software, by unlocking software. And ultimately, that's, I think, the avenue that they're going is, is, is you know, to combine low margin energy products with software, which is like AutoBidder. And that generates the revenue that they need, the high margin revenue. Excellent. Okay, I'm going to ask you this question about Tesla. Last question about Tesla, then we can we can talk. We can go beyond Tesla. Um, uh, and uh, what would you say is Tesla's fair value, according to you? What's the ballpark fair value? Do you think that Tesla should be trading at? Um, so, like, I just did a very back of the back of the envelope math. Um, if you use the tidbits from uh, you know that we know to be true. Um, which is their long run growth rate, right? Um, Zach has you know, repeatedly stated this, Elon Musk himself has stated this as well, that they expect roughly 50% growth for the foreseeable future, right? 50% growth in unit delivery. So if you, you know, take that number and apply it to their free cash flow, right? And this is actually going to be a conservative approach because the bottom line is experiencing operating leverage right now. So the bottom line is gonna grow faster than the top line for many, many years now. Eventually they'll, they'll converge, right? Once you hit you know, a huge scale, eventually the growth rate of both top and bottom line converge together. But for some time, it's gonna be much higher than 50%. But let's say it grows at only 50%. Um, I did just a small exercise about this and you know, using their current free cash flow growing at 50% per year. Um, you know, out to about 20, uh, out to about 2035, after which growth tapers, you know, significantly lower and ultimately converges with the global GDP growth rate, which is about two and a half percent, two and a half to three percent. If you did all that, the fair value of Tesla um, is $1,200 per share in my view today. Um, And that, and that is not considering anything else that they're doing, you know, adjacent to just the car business. That's purely the auto business and energy business as it is today, growing at 50% per year and then tapering all the way down to two and a half percent, you know, by 2035. Um, That doesn't consider autonomous driving, doesn't consider, um, you know, uh, you know, significantly increasing gross margins due to the new batteries pack or to further, you know, cost declines in battery in, in cost per kilowatt hour. None of that. Just taking what their current you know operations are projected to grow fifty percent and then taper from there, that's what I think twelve hundred dollars per share. And so there's a lot of upside to that. Typically, what I would say is that you know a business that grows at that scale doesn't all of a sudden slow down to grow at GDP rate, right? But I mean that's what we right. do. So our our models tend to be conservative by by definition, and and yeah. uh, and growth many growth stocks remain cheap for that reason. It's just you know we we have these assumptions that you know we are not willing to put a five percent ten percent rate at mm-hmm. say after ten years, right? So I love that. 
thank you for that. Okay, um, I, I realize it's very late for you at Washington DC and it's only midday for me. So, um, and we're taping this on Monday the 17th of May here, which is the 16th in the US. I want to ask you a couple of questions beyond Tesla. Uh, can you give me two ideas beyond Tesla that you think are very interesting and exciting and maybe a very high level view as to why? Yeah, my, uh, my second largest holding uh, after Tesla is Square. Um, and Square is an absolutely fascinating business as well. Um, they are you know, the only bank stock that I would own. And yes, I call it a bank stock because it actually is a bank. Um, you'd never think of it as a bank, but it is a bank. So think of a think of a bank that's growing at sixty, you know, fifty to sixty percent per year. There is none like that, but Square is that. And what they have done is they have basically created a closed loop ecosystem, um, you know, between uh, merchants, right, business owners, and individuals. Um, where they are integrated between credit card processing, which is how they first started. That was their first product. But then they you know, grew into a all-encompassing you know, application, you know, which is called Cash App, that allows for P2P payments. It allows um, you know, stock investing. It allows Bitcoin investing and trading. Uh, it allows you to have a banking account so that you can actually get direct deposit from your job. It works just like a bank account, right? So you have a bank account. You can invest in stocks and you know in stocks through that. You can invest in Bitcoin through that. You can send payments to your friends through that. Um, you can do shopping through that. You can also have a debit card, you know, through that as well. Um, so they have a number of you know uh, you know partnerships with a whole range of you know merchants that you can do shopping and there's lots of incentives that you can get from that as well. So they have basically created a flywheel where. Once you create um, an account with Cash App, once you have a Cash App account, you never need to leave that ecosystem. The problem with existing traditional banks is uh, once you have a bank account, you often need to you know, change it from one account to another. Let's say if you have a bank account, a checking account, and then you want to invest in stocks, usually it's not in that same account. Usually you have to transfer it out, right? Um, traditional banks, uh, you know, in terms of commercial lending, also have a huge lag time because they don't have a lot of data. It typically takes weeks or months to get a small business loan. Whereas Square, because they already have your data, right? Because if you have the Square, um, you know, the you know, if you accept Square, you know, as your business, you know, at your business, they already see the revenue cycle that your business is generating. They see the expenses that you have, so they know through data. Um, how much money that they can lend to you. So if you need a working capital loan for your business, Square will make that, you know, the turnaround time is within three days, you can get that. As opposed to weeks or months that you have to wait and, you know, sit through long, you know, applications and, and you know, have credit checks and all that stuff, you know, run through. So Square is disrupting banking as much as Tesla is disrupting the auto world. Um, and, you know, they have huge profitability. If you look at their, you know, you know, numbers, their gross margins, um, you know, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, bigger uh, or as big as PayPal or in, in, in the future, I think it's going to be a multi-bagger just like Tesla. Can, can I Mayur, quickly ask, because yeah. you said Bitcoin a number of times and, you know, there's something common between Tesla and Square, which is Bitcoin. So I'm just curious your thoughts on what do you think about all the turmoil that's going on in Bitcoin land? 
Um, so I, I, I own Bitcoin myself. I do own it. I've owned it for some time now for, you know, almost three years now. So I have a, a really low cost basis in it. Uh, I think my average cost basis is around 5,000. Um, I, I don't support Tesla owning Bitcoin. Um, well, I should say I did support it until, te- until Elon Musk announced that they're no longer accepting Bitcoin, you know, as payment for, you know, their cars. Um, and the reason is because in general, this is a general principle of finance. I don't think uh, businesses should own financial assets unless if it somehow assists them in their core competency, right? So Tesla is an electric vehicle maker. They, they are a battery maker, right? They're a solar maker. Bitcoin um, doesn't assist them in achieving those goals, right? If it did, I would be all for it. You know, maybe, maybe there is a way that they could do it. Um, maybe it makes, reduces the friction between collecting payments internationally and settling it you know, here. If there was a case like that, then I would then I would you know endorse that. But I don't think that there is a case for that anymore, based on what Elon Musk has said. Um, so I don't think that they should own Bitcoin um, because it doesn't add any value as a shareholder if they owned it. Because we can simply own it ourselves. If you are bullish on Bitcoin, you can own it yourself. You don't need Tesla to own it for you on your behalf as sort of like a you know custodian, right? You can do it yourself. And why is that? Because, you know, Tesla is a business, right? Tesla is a high growth business. So by definition, they're already, uh, you know, inflation protected. Why? Because they're earning a return per dollar of capital that is in far excess of the, of the uh, inflation rate. Inflation might be 3% this year in the U.S. Maybe it's 4%. I don't know. But Tesla is growing at 50%, right? And, you know, net income is now going to be growing at, at a rate even in excess of that. So Tesla has no need to, you know, you know, invest their cash into inflation hedges like Bitcoin, um, because the business itself is growing at a high rate, and therefore it is an inflation hedge, by definition. Um, so I don't think they need to do it. Square is a little bit of a different case because uh, Bitcoin is a fundamental part of their business. They offer Bitcoin trading, and so they have to maintain a certain inventory of Bitcoin in order to facilitate those, those trades and earn a small commission from that. Um, so it makes sense for Square to own it, um, but I don't think it makes sense for Tesla or any other companies to own it if it doesn't in some fundamental way assist them in you know, executing their core competencies. So that's my Excellent. that's basically my position on Bitcoin, yeah. Like that. Okay, do you have time to tell me about the second business? I'm actually gonna ask you how much time do you have? That's gonna decide how many questions I'm gonna ask you. Um, I mean, I guess we can go on maybe another, I don't, I don't want to stretch it out too long, but maybe another 10 minutes or so. But yeah. Okay. So tell, tell, yeah. tell me about the other business that you like, because I think that's an interesting one. Yeah. This is another passion of mine, which is beyond meat. Um, so again, my general principle is finding high growth companies, right? High growth companies that are growing for a reason, right? Are growing for some good reason. Do the, comp- does the, do the customers love the product? Or is the company solving an unmet need, right? These are my favorite ways to pick stocks. Um, and Beyond Meat, I believe, is doing something equally as important as Tesla, which is attacking the meat industry. Um, and by many accounts, the meat industry contributes almost as much, maybe not quite as much, but almost as much, or at least a significant amount 
of greenhouse gas emissions, right, globally. Um, and that is not sustainable. If we want to work towards a sustainable environmental future, we have to do something about the meat industry. We can't just ignore it because that is a major culprit among total greenhouse gas emissions. And so Beyond Meat for the first time ever has figured out how to replicate animal protein uh, using entirely plant-based sources, right? Um, up until now, yes, we have had veggie burgers for years and years and years, right? Vegetable burgers. But, you know, people that love, you know, traditional like Angus beef burgers are never going to have a vegetable burger, right? It's just not the same thing. It's just a very, it's a completely different thing. Um, so Beyond Meat recognized this need that you're never going to convince carnivores to stop eating beef unless if you make something that is almost you know, impossible to tell the difference, right? So they were the first ones to be able to do this at scale, um, where now at the fundamental molecular level, if you actually see their, um, their quarterly letter that they put out for Q1, they have a slide on there that shows at the molecular level, you know, you, you look at under a microscope, what their Beyond Burger looks like under a microscope and what beef looks like, or I, actually, I think it was pork. So what pork looks like under a microscope versus their sausage under a microscope. And you can see that there's almost no difference at the molecular level. So they've been able to replicate to a very high degree um, animal protein, you know, using entirely plant-based sources. So ultimately what they have to do is get closer and closer and closer, right? It's a march of nines, right? As Elon Musk calls it where we have to try to get as close uh, to the taste and texture of, of animal protein of beef and pork. If we can do that, and if we can do it at a affordable price, there will be huge market adoption for this because it attacks this you know, core problem of environmental concerns, but it also does a number of other things too, which is better for your health, right? It, it, you know, meat is known to be a carcinogen. It has other problems too. Um, but also it's for animal welfare too, right? So we wanna save as many animals as possible. I know as a carnivore, you may not be as interested in that, you know, but ultimately, you know, if it tastes just as good, if it has a similar texture, if it's better for you, and if it's better for the environment, you know, why not, right? It just makes fundamental sense. Just like for electric vehicles, it makes fundamental sense for us to switch over to electric cars. In the same sense, if they can do this, um, it makes fundamental sense. Now, I don't think you know we're going to go to 100% plant-based, uh, you know, um, you know, protein. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Like electric vehicles will go to 100%, but the global meat industry is massive, right? It generates 1.2 trillion dollars of revenue every year. Um, so even if plant-based meat gets to just 10% market share. And I think it will get to 10%. Um, you know, that's $120 billion revenue potential. I think Beyond Meat, because of their execution, because of their vision, uh, because of their R&D uh, lead time and their know-how, I think they can get to, you know, 15 to 20% market share of that $120 billion, you know, market, which would be a, you know, possibly a 10-bagger from where the stock is trading at right now. So I, I think, I actually think to be on me by 2030 will be a 10 bagger from today's price. That's why I'm invested in that one as well.
Fantastic. My, my daughter loves Beyond Meat. She would uh, pick a Beyond Meat over a real meat burger every day and twice on Sunday because I think you hit the nail on the, you know, on the coffin in terms of the taste. The taste is good and so real that you know, even those people who like meat actually will you know, find a reason to actually be on, on the Beyond Meat bandwagon. So I'm a fan mm-hmm. Beyond Meat. Okay, let's do some rapid fire and then we'll conclude. Um, three investors uh, that you've learned most from. Um, I have learned the most from Warren Buffett. Um, I've read uh, his shareholder his uh, shareholder letters from over the years, so that's been my number one um, influence. Um, and then also Seth Klarman, who is a contemporary of his. He's also a great value investor, also a growth investor um, occasionally. And then Bill Miller, um, who you know was an early investor, a very early investor of Amazon. And he's actually the one that I learned the most from in order to understand the value of Tesla. Because if you watch his interviews over the years, the tools and analytical methods that he talked about of how he was able to see the value of Amazon is in my view, almost exactly the same as the investment case for Tesla, right? This ability to discern discretionary from mandatory spending right? The growth rate, right? The implied, the implied profitability that you don't necessarily see from the traditional gap, you know, net income number, right? Um, so he's the one that I actually should credit, you know, all of my, um, you know, thinking towards in order for me to recognize Tesla early on as well. Yeah. Okay. So th- this is a hard one then. What do you disagree with uh, if I, you know, what is it that of Bill Miller that you actually disagree or do you think he's wrong about? Uh, he's not wrong often. Um, I, I actually have been in touch with him. Uh, I've been sending emails back and forth with him. Um, I tried to convince him about Tesla. Um, and this was in 2019 as well. So this was before this huge run-up that we've seen. And I, I, I tried to say that, look, the same things that you told us about in Amazon 20 years ago, I think is happening with Tesla today, right? Unfortunately, he didn't see it the same way. He still, he kind of made the, uh, you know, the, the argument that yes, there's, comp- he conceded the fact that Elon Musk is a genius and what he's done with Tesla is, is done right phenomenal, but he still used the argument of competition and, um, you know, low margins in the auto world and low returns on capital in the auto world as a reason for him to avoid the investment. So I think he was wrong okay. on that. So, All right. Yeah. <laughs> so far, he has been wrong. Uh, yeah. We'll see how it, how it pans out. Okay, to conclude, uh, I know, and again, this is for those people who have actually stuck with us for this long and, and dealt with the, the few uh, tech challenges we've had. What would you, um, you know, what are some high-level takeaways that you want to, you know, you want people to remember from this talk? You know, what is it that they can, I guess, if they're not interested in Tesla or a particular business, what would you like them to take away? Yeah, ultimately, I think to be successful in investing, um, we have to build a conviction, right? Um, You should always build a conviction, a fundamental case for companies. And it should be based on your own due diligence. Don't rely on other people's research. Um, You know, you will see very smart people make mistakes. And you'll see a lot of other people give wrong information or, you know, give information that is not relevant to the, you know, the the long-term fundamental case for the company. 
So you should do your own due diligence, um, never entirely rely on others, um, but build a conviction, right? Understand like what it is about this company that makes you excited. Do you want to be a part of the future that they're building, right? That makes it a lot easier. And ultimately, you should know your own strengths, right? Everybody has a specific um, expertise. If you work in a certain industry, right? And if you know that this has been the major trend that the entire industry is shifting towards, then you know something that other people don't know necessarily, right? And so you should invest in the companies that you know are creating value better than others, right? You have that edge, you have that information edge and it can be in anything, right? It could be, you know, even if you're a teenager and you see all my friends are using Instagram, everybody posts on Instagram. Well, why not take a look at Facebook then as an investment? That could be a good thing to do. And you could have done that, you know, 10 years ago and you would have made a great, you know, uh, return from that. Ultimately build a conviction is step number one. Um, you know, base it on verifiable facts, right? Look at the facts. What are the facts, what do the facts say? And does that square with what your thinking is, right? Um, and then once you've built that conviction, start asking questions like, you know, does the company do something that is fundamentally solving a problem, right? Are they doing something that's solving a problem? Or if they're not solving a problem per se, then do their customers love what they do, right? Do they have repeat customers? Are the customers happy with their products and services? Do their customers recommend their products and services to their friends and family, right? These are all um, indications of the long-term success of a business, right? And so those things need to be there. That question needs to be a yes. One of those two questions, preferably both, but one of those two questions have to be a yes. Do the, you know, do the customers love the product or service or, and or are they solving an unmet need or underserved need? One of those two have to be yes. Then number three is, are people voting with their dollars, right? Do you see that revenue growth, right? If they are recommending you know, their products and services to friends and family, then that has to be translating into revenue growth. So that has two implications. One is people want their product and service. And two, the business is able to execute on that demand, right? The demand itself is a great problem to have, but if you can't execute and provide that service, in a way that customers love, then that demand doesn't make any sense. It doesn't mean anything. So revenue growth has to be there. Um, and then gross profit as well has to be there, right? And then the next question is, you know, does management have skin in the game, right? Like for example, Elon Musk owns everything in Tesla. That's basically his entire net worth is Tesla. Um, Ethan Brown, right? The CEO of Beyond Meat, a big, big part of his net worth is uh, share, you know, stock in Beyond Meat. Same with Jack Dorsey and Square. So, you know, this is not a requirement, but it's a, it's a nice to have. You want to see the owner operator running the company because it's his own thing, right? Um, you know, and then other things too, like other qualitative things, like what does the company do that's different from the competition, right? If you can answer these questions in a confident way, right, based on facts, then you have on your hands a very, very good company, right? So you've identified a great, you know, potential investment. Then the next question is on valuation, right? And the simplest way you can value a company is to look at how big is the total addressable market, right? If the total, total addressable market, let's just say, for example, for Beyond Meat is $120 billion. Let's say you think that they can grab 20% market share, right? So that's about $24 billion of revenue that they could do at some point, maybe by 2030 or so. 
and then apply a, a reasonable multiple to that, right? Which is the price to sales multiple in that case. What do other food companies trade at in terms of their price to sales multiple? It's roughly three times, right? Very average. So 24 billion times three, right? That's about $72 billion. That's the potential market cap that Beyond Meat could trade at by say 2030. What is the, what is the market cap today? It's roughly 6 billion or so. So that is a pretty good return that you can you know, expect. Now that's obviously based on a lot of assumptions, but you should do this minimum exercise to make sure that you're just not over dramatically overpaying for a company, right? A minimum exercise like this. If you go through these five or six questions that we just talked about, then you have on your hands a great you know, potential investment. And then the last thing is, once you've answered all these questions and once all the boxes check off, buy the dips, right? You should buy these dips because then what's happening is when these big you know, corrections occur, like right now in Tesla and Beyond Meat and Square and all these high growth companies are getting hit 20, 30, 40% right now. When you buy these dips, what's happening is um, you're taking advantage of time frame arbitrage. This is a, a concept that Seth, Seth Carmen and um, you know, Warren Buffett and his mentor, Ben Graham, have talked about incessantly, which is that markets assign a greater weight to short-term events than long-term events, right? Ben Graham used to say that markets are a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run, right? Voting is based on opinion, but your weight is based on objective fact, right? It doesn't matter whose opinion is what. You are what you weigh, right? So ultimately, the stock will track its fundamentals in the long run. So when you buy the dips, you are taking advantage of short-term thinking of the marketplace and locking in at a much lower valuation, which means that expectations are much lower for that company. So as long as your conviction in those other points that I mentioned are still there, as long as all those boxes are being checked, then suddenly you're getting that asset at a discount. So you should buy the dip. And that's what I do personally. Whenever stocks in my high conviction list get hit hard like this, it's you do the exact opposite of what the herd is doing. You should be moving towards those companies, not away from them. That increases your return over time as long as that revenue growth continues the way that it already has been doing. So build a conviction and you'll do great. You know, maintain a long-term view and buy the dips. That's the summary. That's basically the, the sum, summation of that. I've been doing that last couple of weeks. And you know, to, to our seven investing listeners and everybody else who's going to listen to this, I think if you have stuck to the end, I think you've got essentially a summary on how to be an analyst and how to actually look at high growth stocks. I would highly recommend people actually look at it, reread it, revise it, because I think that's like, um, I, I think it's a template which you can then customize to make your own. Everybody has to make things their own because if exactly that's part of the building conviction thing that uh, Mayur talked about. Mayur, I have totally enjoyed this conversation. It's been fascinating for me. And I realize again, we had a couple of technical hiccups. And I think uh, there's probably, I could produce three articles out of this. So I might actually do that because there's so, many, so much content here that you, uh, you, know, you have talked about and so much useful, interesting things that I think investors in general can benefit from. So thank you, Mayur a lot for doing this, uh, staying up late at night. I enjoyed it um, and uh, it was great. And when we, you know, when we publish it, we will uh, tweet it out and we'll give people your Twitter handle as well so they can follow you uh, and learn from you. Thank you once again, uh, Mayu. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me on your planet. I definitely appreciate it. Thank you. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.